unleavened bread is tomorrow. Just the way it fell. But there are indeed, of course, as we all know by now, only seven, seven total, including Passover. Yesterday I gave you several, I think, important keys to overcoming sin. Uh, briefly, you have to examine yourself and find it. Then, in the light of God's Word, you have to admit it. And then, you need to make a list, even a written list, so that you do not so quickly forget it. And then you have to find commitment in order to accomplish it. And you have to come to the point you want to overcome sin. Most of us sin because we enjoy it. There are temporary pleasures of sin, as is mentioned in Scripture. It's easier also to live with sin than it is to do something about it. So we read Scripture and we come to the conclusion that we should overcome sin, but we only wish we wanted to, instead of truly wanting to. So you have to get beyond wishing and dreaming and get down to the point you want to. And there you must go to God, because the human natural mind does not want to turn loose of sin. And we went through uh, parts of Exodus to show how hard it was to get unencumbered and away from sin, pictured by Egypt. So you need to go to God for help and constantly look in His Word as well, which reminds you, lest you forget. And I made another point toward the end, that we also need to be aware, not only of our sins, but when they most likely will overtake us. Under what conditions? The where, when, what, how, and why of sin. Because you sin mainly under certain conditions that occur in your life, whether it be morning, noon, or night, or whether it be with these people, those people. Uh, usually you sin more either by yourself or with someone. <laughs> and you have to sort of figure out when those times are and what has bearing on it so that you can watch out for it and be aware of it. And that was pretty much a quick summary of yesterday. Oh, the seventh point then was, I almost forgot, turn it loose. You can go through all this, but there comes a point where you simply have to say, I have to lay this aside. And sometimes turning it loose is as hard a part as any of these named here. You can wrestle with it, you can work on it, you can fool around with it, but there comes a point where you have to cast it away, turn it loose. That decision has to be made. Now, those are some important keys that we need to use to put sin out as we've been working on these last seven days. Today, I want to go into a little, little different direction, and that's motivation. 
motivation to put sin away from us. Now, there are a part A and a part B here. I will dismiss part A pretty quickly, though maybe I shouldn't. And part A in motivation is scare the hell out of you. Now, the Baptists use this a lot. Uh, tell you you're going to hell if you keep sinning. And that is known in many cases as fear religion. The Catholics use it quite a bit and various others. And indeed, there are scriptures in the Bible, such as Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was not much, and the rich man thought he was above him. And then came time of resurrection, and the rich man realized he was going into the lake of fire, and there was a great gulf between he and Lazarus, that is, immortality. And Lazarus had been raised to eternal life, and the rich man was going into the lake of fire. So Christ did say that there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He does have a plan, however, uh, and one main statement is in Romans 11, where he says that all Israel shall be saved, verse 26. So God's plan is going to eventually save most of mankind, because God is a successful creator and a successful father. But still in all, there will be some who become bitter and resentful and angry as Esau did. Not at God initially, he was just angry at his brother. But it came to the point, it pervaded his personality to the point that the hate was so deep that even though he sought repentance bitterly and with tears, he could not get past it. And bitterness is the hardest thing, resentment and bitterness, that there is to overcome. Once you let a root of bitterness grow, it grows deeply and grows and grows and grows as it did in Esau. So there is that side of the coin and a certain amount of fear of not living forever but dying forever should motivate us to some degree. I do not want us to live always in fear and worrying in that sense, because I think the more positive motivation is where we're going to find the strength, the courage to overcome. And that motivation would be part B. We've, we've already dismissed part A at this point. We'll try to be positive and uplifting. What you can have has to be our greatest motivation. Let's go to Hebrews 2, and in verse 6. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Now that implies that man isn't much, and it also implies that God is mindful of man. The question is why? When you look at mankind and all of his activities and attitudes around the world, you would say, why would God, who is so far above all and rules the universe, be mindful of mere man who lives and dies in a short period of time and goes dust to dust? Or the Son of Man that you visit him? that you pay attention to, that you're involved with, or visit man. 
You made him, and the Greek should say here in translation, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. So he's speaking here of the future. We are for a little while now made lower than the angels, but we will be made higher than angels and manage them later on when we have the works of God's hands, or our hands, set over the works of God. Now, you are not truly fearful as I look at you. Scary, maybe, but not to be feared, really. When you walk into a room, do people see you come in the room and fall on their faces in awe and fear? Now, they may run and trip on themselves and fall on their face. That's possible. But, but they don't just fall on their faces. Now, the places in the Bible where mankind encountered angels or the angels approached man, man invariably fell on his face in awe and fear. We were made for a little while lower than the angels. The implication being, and can be proved, that we will be made higher than the angels at some point, and will manage them and guide them and use them as our servants. The point being, they, to us, in their glory already, make us fearful and awestruck when we do encounter them. Satan bowls people over backwards. They fall on their backs. But holy angels make people fall on their faces. So, he's saying here that he is going to put them and all things in subjection under his feet, verse 8. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But we see not yet all things put under him. The subject is still mankind. We will be given rulership over the earth later and the entire universe. All things. Verse 9, But we see Emmanuel, who was made a little lo- for a little while lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So we already see that. We already know that that has happened that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So Christ was sent to suffer as a man, to go through the trials and tribulations of humankind, so that he may be made the captain of our salvation and bring glory to us. We are not glorified and we are not full of glory, or glorious really in any way, except the little light of God's Spirit that might show in our personality here and there. That's the only glory we have to date. And it isn't much that shows, it certainly doesn't show in the form of a halo, Uh, though sometimes we wish. 
Verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like to his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So we're made a little while lower than the angels, to be tried, to be tested, to be worked on, And we have he, who has been glorified, who was man, to help us. What better mentor, what better help could you have than Christ, the Messiah, himself, to help bring us to the kingdom of God? Now there begins some motivation. That we were made and put on this earth not to stay lower than the angels, but to be upgraded above them. Chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. He has said he will live in us, live his life in us, that we are his house, his temple. That he would himself live in us. And that will continue if we hold fast, firm to the end. Not let it get away. Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Now, they were being proved, but they wanted proof of God. Keep all these promises. Do all these things for us. Give us manna. Give us quail. Give us water. Give us deliverance, and so on. But because of their attitude of not believing and showing faith to God, they all died in the wilderness, save Caleb and Joshua. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore, verse 10, I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. It was always a heart problem. Always a heart problem. They died in the wilderness of a heart attack, essentially. It was their heart that was wrong, that led them astray and led to their death. So I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter into my rest. That would be the millennium, uh, spoken of in chapter 4. The Sabbath is a picture of the millennium, the seventh day or the 7,000 years. And they won't enter that. They will be in the great white throne judgment and have opportunity at spiritual salvation then. Take heed, brethren, verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You and I have been given opportunity, as Christ said, to be friends of God, not just servants, but friends, there in John 14 to 17. He has said He will live in us, dwell in us, as His house and temple, as we just read. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today 
lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We have opportunity to be in the kingdom of God and live with the Father and the Son forevermore unless we have our hearts hardened by sin. Then you see a little more clearly why we need to get rid of sin. It hardens the heart. What does it say in Matthew 24? That in the end time, sin will abound and the love of many will wax cold. So most of the difficulties that we have, I might even venture to say all, among ourselves, between ourselves, attitudes, relationship issues, are the result of sin. Because that removes the love and creates the conflicts. Sin is at the root of all trouble. But he tells us to encourage, exhort one another daily. Help each other because we need each other. You can't do this alone, brethren. No man is an island. No man stands alone. We have to go to the Father and the Son, and we need one another. That's why he tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together so much the more as the day draws it's near there in Hebrews 13. That's why he tells us that we are to be fitted together as a body, to be together and everything work harmoniously, and on and on it goes. So we need the exhortation, the encouragement, the strengthening, the guidance from each other. For, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. You can't let anything slip away. He does tell us in another place not to take it for granted, but to, and not to shrink back, but to take hold and not allow it to slip away. It can very easily. Let's go to chapter 11 of Hebrews. Again, briefly here in verse 38. This is the end of the chapter about all those who were faithful and who are awaiting their reward when Christ returns. God is very encouraging here in giving us a list. Not a complete list by any means, but at least a start. And he says, verse 38, Speaking of all these who were faithful, of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So God's people who were true and faithful and obedient did not have easy lives. These people he's speaking of right here, some of the most familiar names in the Bible that we know of, did not have easy lives. Having to wander about in fear sometimes and live in caves and dens was difficult was not easy because of persecution, because of various issues. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Now you would have thought, wouldn't you, that all these people as faithful and as strong, as obedient to God as they were, would have received the promise of God, gone to heaven when they died? No, that's not in Scripture. No man has ascended except he which came down. 
They didn't receive it. Why? Why did God set it up? He could have done it differently. He could have made it where when each person in the past, all these faithful, came to a certain point of growth and development, he could have made it where they were changed in a moment, in the twinkling of the eye, couldn't he? It was his plan. He could do it any way he wanted to. He didn't do it that way for a specific reason. He set the plan up the way it is for a reason. That's in verse 40. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, David, all are going to be in the kingdom of God. But they are not, because they have to wait in their graves until you and I are also changed. God is lumping us together with these faithful here in Hebrews 11. Paul was writing to the Christians of that day, but God saw that it was inspired and written down for those of us today. Because we are included in that number if we're faithful to the end and seize and hang on and do what we need to do. That should provide some motivation. We don't think of ourselves as such a much, do we? And the reason being, we're not. We're still human, very human, prone to sin, prone to mistakes, prone to discouragement, doubt, fears, and problems, resentment, ingratitude, you know, unforgiveness, on and on and on it goes. We're still subject to those things, and we're fighting mightily, hopefully, against them. Running a race, as Paul put it, so that we might receive the prize. But God has included us here in Scripture as one of those that those people are waiting for. Notice 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Christ says he will live his life in us. It's repeated right here that our bodies are the temple of the Spirit. Now God is absolutely holy. He is clean, he is pure, and he wants a holy house to dwell in. And he says in verse 17, wherefore, because God is dwelling in us, wherefore come out from among them, and be you separate, says the Eternal, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Unclean is equal to sin. Sin is the transgression of the law. So we're not to touch sin. We're to stay away from sin. And he says he will receive us. It's a very, very positive. And will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Eternal Almighty. So he offers us 
membership in his family is as eternal sons and daughters if we will stay away from sin. So, being a part of the kingdom and the family of God should be a very strong motivation for us to put sin aside and touch not the unclean thing. Now, I mentioned yesterday our enemies were Satan and ourselves and the world around us. Somebody had put that a little differently with the three S's, which I thought was really good. It helps you remember it. The three S's are Satan, society, and self put in three words. Those are the three things, truly, that we fight. And if we fight a good fight, God says He will dwell in us. Now, how could He stand it as dirty as we are? The stuff that still goes through our minds. Thankfully, we have the continual sacrifice of Christ whereby we live, working toward repentance, asking for forgiveness and repentance daily, and try to crucify ourselves daily, crucified in Christ, and as Paul put it, I die daily. So it is that effort toward staying away from the unclean, combined with the blood of Christ which removes that in us, we sang it today, that blessed are those, or whatever the words are exactly, to whom God imputes no sin. If we are willing and working at putting sin out and loving God and each other, He will not impute sin to us. Let's say you make a mistake, I make a mistake. God does not impute that to me. He doesn't put it on my record. He doesn't put your sin on your record. Because you are living and walking in grace, in unmerited pardon, day by day. And your sins are forgiven. He gives you a fresh start, as he says in Lamentations 2 or 3, every morning. So he accounts you worthy of his indwelling. He makes you worthy through the sacrifice and blood of Christ. Therefore, we stand sinless, brethren, day by day. Now, we recognize the imperfections. We are thankful for the grace and mercy. So we work at, every day, putting sin out, even as Paul did. Think of that next time you try to condemn yourself and get too discouraged. Or when you condemn someone else and resent them for the sin you see, you think, in them. Maybe in God's view, it isn't there at all. Who are we to judge another man's servant? Who are we to judge one another? We can't. Because, didn't we read the other night, that Christ removes the sin and we stand unblameable before him. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Anyone who is in accuser mode is of Satan the devil. Okay? And Satan goes before God's throne about you and about me daily. And he accuses us of all the things he sees us thinking and doing down here. 
And you know what? Christ turns to his father and says, My blood covered that. Satan doesn't have a leg to stand on. My blood covered this. It covered this. That man is clean before me and I'm dwelling in him. That's incredible when you stop to think about it. To be aware of it. To know how we stand before God in spite of ourselves. Not because of ourselves, but in spite of ourselves because of the gigantic proportions of Christ's sacrifice and what it meant. And we need to look at one another that way. That we are the clean, the holy, through the sacrifice of Christ. Not on our own merit, not by any means. But you cannot look at yourself, and you cannot look at your brother in Christ, in the light of the way you look at the people in the world. Their sins are with them. They have not been forgiven. They're still living under the old covenant. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But we are not. We, have set us, we are set aside and we are sanctified. Made clean, set apart as holy. Is where we stand. Now, let us not infringe upon that by, for whatever reasons and ways, we are led astray or pulled away from or become bitter or resentful in any way. Because God accounts us as holy. That's what Passover is all about. That we rehearse that. Symbolically, but it's not just once a year. It's every day of the year that his sacrifice is there as a continual sacrifice. You cry out daily, don't you? I do, for God's mercy and forgiveness and Christ's blood to be shed in our behalf. Yes, we do. Does God grant it? Yes, he does. We have a fresh start every day. And let's give each other that. God gives it to you, he gives it to me. Remember the story of the man who owed much and who owed little? And the one who had much debt was forgiven and then wouldn't forgive those who owed him a little bit? Let's give each other what God gives each of us. We need to look at each other that way. And that should be encouraging and helpful. Let's read one verse in chapter 7. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Realize what an awesome thing it is that your daily sin is wiped away in the blood of Christ. And therefore, as holy, as cleansed, as unblameable, to whom God imputes no sin, work at getting the sin out. Even Paul said, 
since we're under grace and pardon, shall we, shall we then continue in sin and sin more that grace may abound? No, we show thankfulness for the forgiveness that we did not deserve by trying to put out sin and get rid of it so we don't have to have quite as much forgiveness. So that it's easier in that sense, maybe, for God to live His life in us because of our attitudes and our approach. Now, Christ is not a respecter of persons. But did He not have a closer relationship with the Apostle John than with any of the others? John was the one who laid on his chest. I can't think of this culturally, but... uh, There are cultures in the world today where men can have affection with each other without being weird. Kiss each other on the cheeks. But but doesn't do it for me. I'm sorry. I didn't grow up that way. It's not a cultural thing here, but it is in Italy and a lot of other places. But John, by personality, was one whom Christ was closer to. Now, he didn't put him in charge, he put Peter in charge, because Peter had other qualities of leadership that were needed in the church. But as far as a close personal friend, I think Scripture is fairly clear that he was closest to John in that way. All right, on to Hebrews 12. Go back to Hebrews for a moment, then we'll get away from it. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we are also also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Remembering chapter 11 and all those people who have made it, not received it yet, but made it, think about that. Looking to Emmanuel, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the stake, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now here was a man who had lived on this earth as a man, But prior to that, he had been at his father's throne, partners with his father, had himself done the actual creating of everything we see around us, and that was such a joyful time for him, such a joyful existence, that even though he was put on this earth as a human being, who sweated and worked and strived, sweating blood against sin, he strived so hard at it and never giving in. He went through all that because of the joy that was set before him that he would be again turned back into God and that he could be the one who led us into the same place. That's what brought him joy. 
When he was on the earth, he was a man of sorrows because he saw how departed from God mankind was and is. But he had this joy inside that he knew there was a plan whereby we could be raised above the angels and share what he and the Father had shared throughout all eternity. And as a result of the joy that was in him, that's one reason joy is such an important part of the, spirit, of the fruit of the Spirit of God. Because of that joy, he was able to endure crucifixion, the shame and spitting, the curses, and is set down again at the right hand of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. We need the joy of salvation deeply embedded in our hearts and minds. And then, with that motivation, strive hard against sin. He's including the motivation of what we can have, along with sin, to show us that overcoming sin is what can give us that which we all hope for. These days are so very, very important when you consider these things. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Maybe this is getting ahead of the plan a little bit, but I think it's, it's motivation that we need to get us to the Feast of Trumpets. 1 Corinthians 15. And start in verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall also, and we shall be changed. And I'll show you in a little bit that at that resurrection, there are only a limited number who will be. And Scripture shows that. So this is talking about us, as we shall see, not anybody else. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. No longer do we worry about death or damage in any way. Now, some of us are looking at death, aren't we? Just in terms of age. Some of us are looking to death just by driving to town and maybe having a Mack truck run over us. We don't know what's going to bring death. We're still so human, so fleshly. That will all change. No more death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. That is the penalty of the law. We break the law, that's sin. The penalty of sin is death. That means then that we will no longer sin. Your sin and days will be over. Never, ever, one sin again. 
Try to imagine that. That's beyond me. I struggle to get through a day with sin. Maybe an hour. Maybe a moment. Bringing every thought. Thoughts don't last very long, do they? Boom, 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 boom. They can go very fast. I can't imagine being totally without sin. It's a dream. It's a hope. It's a wish. It's a reality. If we strive and overcome. Wherefore, my brethren, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the eternal, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the eternal. All this striving, this working, this patience, this difficulty, these tribulations and trials are worth it. They are not in vain because God is going to reward those who will serve Him. So you have the promise of God in heaven. You can't get a stronger promise than that. There is no one more trustworthy, no one whose word is indelible, cannot be erased, wiped out, washed away, or anything else. He's the one. And He has made this promise. Let me pick up one more in John 17. In verse, I think it's 19. Yeah, John 17, 19. And for their sakes, speaking of the disciples here, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. He was set aside for crucifixion and resurrection, and he sets us aside for eternal life, sanctifies us. He says, For their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. It's It's important. Understanding the things of God in the Bible is important because it's through the truth that we are sanctified. That means there are a lot of religions out there and a lot of people who think they are sanctified who are not because they don't know the truth. He does not give His Spirit to those unless they obey, Acts 5.32. Or 29, I guess that one is. Neither pray I for these alone, speaking of the disciples, Notice this, this is important. I don't just pray for these twelve, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Not just spoken word in their lifetimes, but this written word has also led us to believe. It's what we have that ties us to God. So he's speaking to us here. That they all may be one. Not divided, not separated, not agitating, one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you. Total unity is the goal and approach. That they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. Now there's a verse 22 
which tells us that we are going to be God. If we are to be as the Father and the Son are, absolutely one with them, we have to be of like kind. We have also to be God. Mankind works at playing God. Some people set themselves up as God. And really, you and I put things ahead of God, which is idolatry, and set ourselves up as God every time we disobey God. So idolatry is pretty widespread. It's not just Hitler and Mussolini and others who set themselves up in the place of God. It's every one of us when we sin. An idol is something that is placed ahead of God. And any time we put our human flesh and desires, illegal ones, ahead of God and go against His way, we have made ourselves an idol. Colossians 3, I think, says that covetousness is idolatry. So anything we want that is illegal and go for creates idolatry. But we cannot go there. But we are to become God. And it is not uh, an abomination or wrong for us to recognize that, to work toward that. Now there's some motivation. If I will, if I will obey and serve God with all my heart, mind, body, and soul, I will someday be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and become incorruptible as God is incorruptible. Let's go to Revelation 2. Now, God has made certain promises to those that will overcome. He's written to seven different divisions or congregations or attitudes of the church here in Revelation 2 and 3. And he's made some promises to those that would overcome sin. And he uses that for all seven. So no matter what part of the church, what attitudes we might have, all of these promises are for all of us. We need to understand that. One, one promise is not assigned to one branch of the church and another to another because they overlap. And if you're going to become God and receive all the blessings, you're going to receive all these things. He just names a different one for each one of the errors. Let's look at them. Chapter 2, verse 7. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All of the churches. To him that overcomes, shall I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. When the new heavens and the new earth come down, that will be the paradise of God, and you will be in it, and partake of the tree of life that issues out from it. And he said that to all the churches. That's a promise to all of them. Chapter 2, verse 11. I won't even name which ones they are. Uh, he that has an ear, <clears throat> let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. You don't have to worry about Lazarus and the rich man. If you overcome, you will not die. You'll get that victory over death we read about in 1 Corinthians 15. Chapter 2, verse 17. He that has an ear, let him hear uh, what the Spirit says to the church is. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. It's going to have a special name for each and every one of us. God calls things what they are. And what we become through overcoming and through transformation at the resurrection is what God is going to name us. Kind of an exciting prospect. Chapter 2, verse 26. He that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, endures to the end, as Christ says in Matthew 24, to him will I give power over the nations. Chapter 5, verse 10. I'll flip back and read that before we even get there then. Well, let's, let's wait till we finish this. I'll get there immediately after because I have a comment to make. Chapter 3, verse 5. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, that's righteousness, and I, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. Now that's quite a, an inspiring thing if you actually stop to think about it. Here is Emmanuel, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he is going to go before Almighty God, the Father of all, and give him your name. We're pretty insignificant now, aren't we? But if we overcome, if we put sin out of our lives, that's what will happen to you and to me. Pretty impressive. Chapter 3, verse 12. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. Not just get to go there, but be a pillar. One of the things that hold it up. And he shall go no more out. He'll be there forevermore. And I will write upon him the name of my God. Again, we will be God. We'll be named God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. We'll get to that too, I think, if I hurry. Which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Will be named God with a specific name. 321. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I have also overcame, overcame and sat down with my Father in His throne. So overcomers in the church, those who are sanctified, will sit down with Christ in His throne and rule with Him. Now if we go to chapter 5, verse 9, it talks about the prayers of saints, and they sung a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. 
So God has called people of all races, of all tribes and nations of the earth, and redeemed them, able to sing that new song, and have made us unto our God kings and priests, eternal kings, eternal priests, over all the earth. We shall reign on the earth with Christ forevermore. There are very few who have been offered this opportunity, brethren. There may have been 60 billion, give or take, with some estimates, people on earth. Only a very few, in this age at least, are being offered this high a position, this high an opportunity, to actually be reigning with Christ forevermore. Only a few have been given opportunity and will be chosen to do that. Go to chapter 14. And here, beginning in verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred forty-four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. We've already read how we'd have his name put on us. 144,000. That's not many out of, say, 60 billion people. Just a drop in the bucket. 144,000. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts. We just read that in chapter 5. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from on the earth. Have you ever heard choirs singing? Have you ever heard incredibly talented soloists? And you wish you could sing that song. There are so many times I've wished I had the talent to sing like people I've heard. It's just not there. It wouldn't matter how much I worked at it. I just don't have it. But I'd like to. When I hear some music that is so inspiring and gives me chills up and down my spine and a little circle of nerves in the top of my head at the conclusion of it, man, I'd like to be able to sing like that. We can. There are only 144,000 that can sing this song. Nobody else can do it, no matter what. Only those will be given that capacity, ability, and opportunity. And you can be one of those. You've been given that chance. These are they which are not defiled with false religion, for they are virgins. They've been cleansed, made pure in the Lamb. Paul, remember, spoke of the Corinthians, who were probably the most corrupt, immoral society around, and said he would present them as chaste virgins to Christ. Now, in the flesh, they were by no means that. But spiritually, all sin, spiritual fornication and adultery and physical, could be wiped away in the blood of Christ. And they could be virgins. So can we.
All sin, all bad attitudes can be wiped away. And we can be one of those. Now notice, these are they which follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Once they are made part of the 144,000, they go with Christ everywhere. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Here we're told in so many words that the first fruits spoken of throughout the New Testament and alluded to in the Old, only number 144,000. These are the first fruits. No more, no less. This is the first resurrection. There are other resurrections, as Revelation 20 shows us, where man will be given opportunity to be part of the kingdom of God. But out of, let's say, 60 billion, only 144,000 in the first 6,000 years of man's experience will be selected to rule with Christ and go everywhere he goes. We'll see that it is an even closer relationship than this implies as we go on here. Uh, Let's go to chapter 15, verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. The tribulation, the three and a half years, is the wrath of Satan. But the seven last plagues, which come out over a year's period of time, immediately following the tribulation, is the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. This has to be the 144,000 singing the song of the Lamb. saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, you King of saints. So as the seven last plagues are about to be turned loose on the earth, these 144,000 will be singing the song of Moses and the song of Christ, that no one else can sing, on the sea of glass at the throne of God. And such an incredible vision that is when you think of all this glass and fire in it playing on the glass and the incredible beauty that must be there and us singing in such a way that the Father and the Son are thrilled and chills go up and down their spines when they hear us sing the song of God. Should we overcome? Think that's a good idea? I want to be here. I want to be there, brethren. So much I want to be there. And so much I cling to sin.
So much I have trouble controlling every thought that goes through my mind. What a perplexity. Go to God. Work on it. Strive at it. Run the race. Not beating the air, but organized and working at overcoming sin so you can sing the song of Christ. That means, and it's part of the proof, that the Day of Atonement represents the marriage of the Lamb standing on the sea of glass during that time when the seven last plagues are coming over the earth. Christ is going to come back. The 144,000 will meet Him in the air, meet on the sea of glass, be married, and sing the song of Christ to the Father while the seven last plagues are going on here. They will miss being in the seven last plagues in which most of the remainder of mankind that has survived Satan's wrath will be killed. Only perhaps 100 million left, according to Daniel. And Let's see. And then it goes on to talk about the seven last plagues. So it's in that context. I'll leave it at that for sake of time here. Now let's tie that together with uh, Zechariah 14. I'm getting close to the end here. Don't, don't give up. Behold, the day of the eternal comes, and your spoil shall be divided in the midst of you. And he'll gather all nations. Verse 4, And in his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove to the north and half to the south. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains. Now, this isn't talking about God's people. This is talking about the people who are alive and remain there physically, when he puts his foot down on the Mount of Olives and it splits, they're going to run in terror. You shall flee as like you fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with him, or with thee, it says. In other words... When he, he comes, and we rise to meet him and go back to the wedding, and stay there through the year of the seven last plagues, he will return again to stay by putting his foot down on the Mount of Olives, and we will come with him. Remember, he said, we will all ever be with him, always be with him wherever he goes. He's going to his father's throne to marry us. He's coming back to rule the earth. Christ's second coming is in stages. It isn't a secret rapture. All eyes will see Him, but only those 144,000 will rise to meet Him. And they'll come back with Him when He comes back to rule the earth after the seven last plagues. It's very clear here. The saints don't flee. They're already with Him. They're coming with Him as He sets His foot down. Chapter, or let's see, verses 4. Uh, let's go down to verse 8. It shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half toward the hinder sea, in summer and in winter. 
That's reminiscent of Revelation 21, when the river comes out from underneath the throne of God. That's when he will have set up his rule on this earth. The Father and the Son will be here. All right. Now let's go to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea, no more salt water. All made pure, as Ezekiel shows. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Those who overcome are not only going to reign with Christ as kings and priests, they're going to rule as queen of the universe, the queen of heaven, the queen of the earth, as the bride of Christ. He describes the new Jerusalem as being comprised of the 144,000. New Jerusalem, prepared as a bride. And I heard a voice, great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. To those who overcome, they will have the Father himself and Christ dwelling with them on this earth. And we've read this before, but in the context of today, this is a motivational speech to convince us we really should overcome. What are the conditions? Verse 4. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. These are the 144,000. Not the rest of the world. They'll still have some tears yet to shed. This is for you and me right here. Nobody else. All tears will be gone. You'll never feel them well up again. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. We all suffer from various maladies and pains now, don't we? Health difficulties? Never again. Never again. None. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Write this down. These words are faithful and they're true. And he says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And him that's a thirst, I'll give of the water of life freely. He that overcomes, there's that word again. He that overcomes shall inherit all things. What's your wish list? There's nothing left off. All things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Given sonship in the kingdom of God. Given brideship to the king of kings and lord of lords in the kingdom of God. But the fearful... And unbelieving, 
and abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Well, I did tell you at the beginning, we could scare the hell out of you. <laughs> Here it is, in one of the most inspiring chapters in the Bible, that if you don't overcome, you'll burn. So God gives us mostly positive motivation here. But he gives us a brief description of what happens to those who do not overcome sin. So you can't deny it. You can't get away from it. There came to me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Remember what we read there when the seven last plagues are about to be bored out? And we would be standing on the sea of glass. He carried me away. I'm going to show you the bride, okay? He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious. So he's describing the bride here as the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem. And she is quite something by then. She has the glory of God Himself. Resplendent. She was like a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. No shadow in her. Clear, clear-eyed, clear-minded. And had a wall great and high and had twelve gates and at the gates twelve angels and names written thereon which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Revelation 7 describes 144,000 as 12,000 from each tribe. 144,000. 12,000 from twelve tribes. Twelve foundations it had, verse 14. The twelve apostles, as Christ told us the other night at Passover as we read it, that would be over the twelve tribes of Israel. And then it gives the measurements, 140, 144 cubits, showing the 144,000 again. Verse 18, I'm not, for sake of time here, and I guess I'm, I'm really out of time. The building of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Can't get any better than that. Pure gold, it's just like glass. He's describing you and me, what we will be. And then all these foundations, twelve foundations of different precious stones. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, and every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. The walls gold, the gates pearls so huge with an opening in them that made the gates. Wow. And then the gold of the street shining off those pearls and the light of God lightening it up as no other light can, as we'll see as we go on here. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. 
The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Imagine all those precious stones and gold lit up by the glory of God. No better light to look at gold and jewelry through than that. The nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Still be human beings, human kings, bringing their honor and glory to the bride of the Lamb, the Lamb, and the Father. The gate will not be shut day or night, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's it. Then he goes on to describe this more and more and how the water going out from it will heal the nations and so on. Chapter 22, verse 12. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. To give every man according as his work shall be. I am the beginning and the end. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter into the gates of the city. The law is still in effect. We still have to keep the rules. And if we do, we can go in there. And the only one that does go in there is the bride of Christ, along with the Father and the Son, the angels. For without are sinners. I won't name them all here. You can read it. Verse 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that hears say, Come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. <coughs> In other words, we, ruling on the throne with Christ, will be instrumental in offering salvation to those who survive the seven last plagues and come up in the second resurrection. We will be God, kings and priests and bride, as sons of God. Every high title mentioned throughout the Bible given to Christ as a son of God is then given to us except he will always be the firstborn and always be overall, but we'll be on the same level. Kind begets kind, and kind marries kind. And we will be Christ kind and married to him. And all of this, if we overcome. Now there's some motivation. Go get them, tiger. <laughs>